0: Making a living from art is as big a job as making the art maybe even bigger. But I think it can kind of roll together or become a really creative thing itself. Yeah. But there's a lot of paperwork.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, it is always a pleasure and never a chore to see you in a little (laughs) Zoom box from your remote hideaway in Edinburgh, Scotland. Who was your guest for this week's show?
1: So my guest, whose voice we heard at the top of the show, is Talia Lempert. And she is an artist who specializes in painting and drawing and making prints of bicycles.
2: Bicycles. Amazing. So what made you want to uh, talk to her?
1: So my friend Paula is a very keen cyclist and this year she got a birthday present that she showed me approximately 100 times. She was so excited about it. It was a couple of paintings of her folding bike. She calls it a folder, but to me that's an item of stationery. And the pleasure she took from this gift was just so striking that I knew I wanted to talk to the artist who had brought this joy into my friend's life. And then when she told me about the artist's process, how... Paula had taken her bike to the artist's studio loft and left it there for a few days. I just needed to learn more. And that artist was, of course, Talia Lempert.
2: Amazing. So do you have any uh, extra delicious bits for our Slate Plus listeners this week?
1: I do. And I wish I knew the first thing about bicycles so I could pun appropriately. But alas, I don't. So I asked Talia about art fairs and other events where she interacts with the public and... Since I know that people who are into bikes love to acquire still more bikes. They're like guitar enthusiasts in that regard.
2: Or stationary enthusiasts.
1: Oh, hush, hush, hush. I needed to know if painting people's bicycles makes her want to acquire more bicycles or if having them in her studio scratches the acquisition itch.
2: That sounds great, and if you are a subscriber to Slate Plus, that will be waiting for you at the end of this week's episode. If you're not a subscriber to Slate Plus, I mean... Why not join right now? Go to slate.com slash working plus to sign up. You'll get full access behind the paywall at uh, Slate's mothership site. You'll get bonus segments like that one. You'll get bonus full episodes of shows like big mood, little mood or slow burn. And you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're supporting what we do right here on working. Go to slate.com slash working plus to sign up today. All right, now let's listen in on June's conversation with painter Talia Lempert.
0: So who are you and what do you do? My name's Talia Lempert.
1: I'm an artist. I paint pictures of bicycles. I really want to start by letting you know that I am not a cyclist. So apologies in advance if I ever say something that is just kind of ignorant about bikes or, or painting bicycles. And I also want to note that you came to my attention because a friend got one of your paintings and there is nothing that she loves more in her life right now than that painting so or happy. those paintings. So uh, clearly they're amazing. So let's start with how do you kind of find what it is that you're going to be painting? So
0: most days I try to do what I feel like doing. and um,
1: That's the, the artist's life, right?
0: <laughs> I'm a list keeper. I keep a journal and there's kind of a running list of things I need to do. And if there's a specific project, you know, that I'm doing for somebody, like a commission or licensing work or whatever, then, you know, obviously that takes priority. But otherwise... I really am kind of seeking the flow. <laughs> Sometimes I'll see something like with the bikes, usually there's something that might catch my eye and it might be one of the bikes that's in the loft or one of my friend's bikes. And then I'll
1: start with that and then kind of try to follow the flow. So your, your painting studio is a loft and there are bikes in that loft. And so... Finding the flow might involve kind of just really vibing on a bike that's in there.
0: Yeah. I mean, we have some in our collection. And then there's the bikes that we actually ride. Uh-huh. And then my boyfriend had a bike shop in the Lower East Side for, like, more than 20 years. And a few uh-huh. years ago, he downsized and moved it into the front of the loft. Got it. So, there's that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I have to ask, how did you find your subject matter? Clearly, you're an artist. How did you come to think, okay, this is my subject? So
0: I've always wanted to be a painter. I guess I've always been a painter since I was, you know, a teenager. Mm. And I was really interested in figurative painting, and I studied that extensively. Um, I went to the New York Academy of Art and... um Did a lot of figure drawing and I still draw from the figure Mm. pretty much every week. Mm. And I was painting pictures of people kind of doing things. And then one day I saw a bike for sale and it was really cute (laughs) and it was 80 bucks (laughs) and I just bought it. And it was funny because I wasn't thinking about cycling at all um, before then. And I bought it, and I asked the guy directions to the Brooklyn Bridge, and I, like, heaved it over the bridge. I was like, (laughs) oh, my God, I have to, like, get over the bridge or, you know, and make this bike worth it. And then I started riding it for transportation, and it was so awesome. And I pretty quickly got, like, a 10-speed bike, and I started using it for transportation, and I saw the city in a whole new way. and. Uh it felt really great riding and it was and then the bike was so beautiful every time i came back and there it was still locked up <laughs> waiting for me <laughs> and so i painted some pictures of it and then i started getting more into cycling and meeting more people who were riding and borrowing their bikes to paint and i got into cycling more i raced track for like 7 years and a oh, little wow. bit of road racing And meeting, you know, more people and borrowing their bikes. And I didn't really intend for it to be, you know, a lifelong body of work. But I started in 96 (laughs) and I'm still going. (laughs) And (laughs) it's beyond cycling for me. I mean, I love cycling. Mm -hmm. But it's also a beautiful thing. You know, a bicycle because it's made to carry a person is just, beautiful and there's mm-hmm. something very natural and mechanical about the geometry of it and it makes compositions really beautifully and then because it's it's human powered it's self-propelled and you know a cyclist uses their own energy to move forward it's just such a positive symbol of independence and freedom
1: yeah when I look at your work, you have a, you have a lot of your paintings on, on a website. I'm really struck by the, how different they all are. It's not just colours. It's also that you, you look at different angles. You know, you take different angles. You, you, you do a, a wide shot or a narrow shot. So can you talk through what considerations you go through when you're figuring, OK, what aspect of this bicycle is going to make it into this painting?
0: When I make a painting that looks at one part of a bike, it's usually a gesture that I've caught. You know, like I'm walking by and I see the handlebars turned a certain way. And I just think that's beautiful. And that's what I I try and catch that in the painting.
1: Now, when you do commissions, as I understand it, you have to have the bike. Uh, you have to spend some time with the bike. Can you just kind of explain what what that's about? I paint from observation. So
0: I'm looking at what I'm painting and, and drawing. I'm, I've never really been that good or interested in painting out of my head and painting from photographs is a different thing. Mm. I can do it, but I'm very aware when I'm painting that I'm recording What I'm seeing, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's almost like, I mean, the brushstrokes are a record of what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. So it's it's good to have it there. Yeah, I do think like if you're you're making a work from a photograph, a lot of the decisions of how to translate this into um, 2D have been made. Yeah, and it also makes the person that I'm. I'm doing the painting for a collaborator, even if it's just
1: that they don't have their bike, <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> you know. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's funny. I, I I was trying to sort of think of a, of a parallel, you know, that I could relate to more. And I realized that I had had my pet painted. And that was from photos. <laughs> and at a certain point, the artist, who I knew, so I think she felt empowered to kind of, Pushback said, "Enough photos, okay? Enough, enough with the photos of this of this cat." <laughs> but I, yeah, I I realize that there's a certain amount of you're you're making a sacrifice. Like the person whose bike is in your studio for how how many days typically do you sit with the bike? It depends. A couple weeks would be great.
0: You oh. know, anywhere from two or three days to like 10 days, two weeks. Yeah. And do you move the bike around the studio? Do you sort of see it in different lights or whatever? It depends on what I'm doing. Mm. I mean, there's some commissions where I make a bunch of small sketches and the person can choose from them yeah, or gets first choice from the sketches. yeah. Yeah. And so in that case, I'll move it around. If I'm doing a larger painting, I might make small sketches first. I usually do. And then I'll show them to the person and we can, you know, try and figure out like if they have specific ideas.
1: Yeah. And for the ones that are done in a more sketchy style where you do multiple ones and like and you kind of offer them to the person. What happens to the ones if they choose not to take them all? What happens to those? Do they kind of become part of your archive or? Well, I offer them for sale. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, good. Okay, cool. So then you can buy a picture of someone else's bike, effectively. Yeah, and
0: most of the pictures I sell are of other people's bikes. I see. Which I is see. Kind of wonderful, <laughs> I think. Um, just that we have this a- appreciation for each other, and that it's a it's a larger symbol. While these bikes are all unique bikes, but it's also this larger symbol of independence.
1: I was, you know, reading about you and. You know, there were some people who were just really into a certain kind of bike. And so when they would be very excited when they saw that kind of bike, whose name I can't now remember, like, oh, wow, well, she's, she's painted this kind of bike. And, you know, I could see that if that was their kind of bike, they would, you know, get really excited about it. So it's a world that I just am not aware of. But clearly that's kind of part of the vibe, right?
0: I feel very lucky that I have such a great audience for my pictures. Yeah. I mean, it's very lucky that anybody notices them at all. <laughs> um, and then it's nice because people come at it from all different ways. There are people who are really into cycling and the, and a lot of people who aren't and who just like the paintings. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I've painted different, you know, kind of superstars of American cycling. Which oh. And I've been able to borrow their bikes to paint, which which have been really exciting. And um, and then sometimes the extra images I have of those, some people who've gotten them are big fans of the racer yeah. or might not know who they are yeah. or care. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. which is pretty great.
1: So what materials do you use for your bicycle paintings?
0: When I'm painting, I mostly use oil paint. Sometimes I'll use acrylics. Mm. But generally, I like the way oil looks. It's mm-hmm. you know pigment mixed with oil, and it and it has a certain rich look, and it feels really good to work with. It's uh. like peanut butter or pate <laughs> or something. You know, it's oily. And, You're making me hungry. Yeah, <laughs> yummy. <laughs> <laughs> <It> smells nice, <laughs> and uh, acrylic is like you know, pigment mix with an acrylic polymer. And it's more kind of like a uh, nutter. It just kind of doesn't have the, it doesn't have the oil on it. Yeah, yeah. But you can add all kinds of things to it to make it shiny or flat. Mm-hmm. And it's very useful for different printmaking applications. Um, and I'm really into printmaking. Uh-huh. But so basically for, for painting, I like oil, especially oil on canvas or panel. And sometimes on prepared papers. Acrylic I like on paper, painted, but I don't really, something about it on canvas, all of a sudden, I just don't, personally, I don't like the look so much.
2: Uh We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Talia Lempert after this. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hey, working listeners, Isaac Butler here. Just wanted to take a quick moment of your time to say, uh, if you're enjoying this podcast and want to hear more of what we do, make sure to click subscribe. If you already subscribed to this podcast and you want to alert more people to the great stuff we do, Leave us a review. Give us five stars. If you're on Overcast, press the star button. You know, whatever you can do on your podcast app to let people know that you like this podcast really will bring us new listeners. Also wanted to say that we really want to hear from you. If you have guests that you want us to talk to, uh, questions you want us to answer, advice you need, triumphs you've experienced, wh- whatever it is, just drop us a line at slate.com And we will address those uh, messages to us as part of our week. Bi- weekly bonus show working overtime. All right, now back to more of June's conversation with Talia Lempert.
1: You mentioned that you do printmaking. How does that fit into your artistic practice?
0: I started doing printmaking in about 2000 and I wanted to make prints that were related to my paintings, but a different body of work. Mm. And I had done like a photographic poster, and I wasn't really happy with it. Mm. And I realized that what I really love about art is the surface and the touch. And handmade prints were a way to get that. Mm. So I started studying intaglio printmaking, and now I'm mostly into kind of these homegrown lithography methods uh. so i i don't know how to explain this really but i do paintings and i do i sell at the flea market on the weekends which is actually where i met paula um and so there i sell mostly prints and it's stuff that starts you know at at like 25 dollars up to a few hundred yeah and so I do a lot of screen printing which I use a water base I mix acrylic with uh, mediums to make them great for screen printing and then the lithography what I'm into now is um, these lithographies uh, that are non-toxic and using household materials so you can Mm -hmm. draw on tinfoil and then um, the one I started with was kitchen litho where you draw on tinfoil with something greasy and then pour Coca-Cola on it
2: and Whoa. smear
0: it with maple syrup. Whoa. And then you can print it like a lithograph. And then you can eat it when you're... Uh, lick the, yeah. lick it <laughs> um,
1: you know, I know also that you make a calendar every year. Tell me about the calendar that you make.
0: Well, the calendar is a licensing project with an Italian company called Lignami. Huh. And Lanyami, they pick out 12 pictures every year and mm. I get to approve them. And then I send them high res images and, um, and then they send me the design of the calendar and I approve it. I see. And then, you know, they pay me for the use and, and, then I buy a bunch of calendars from them, and I sell them, and they sell them all over the world, and oh. it's amazing. They're actually in a lot of big museums. like oh. they're, they're usually like in the Tate gift shop in yeah, the yeah. Pompidou, and people see them all over the world. It's really a privilege. That's so fantastic. Oh, and they do a, a really great job. The calendars are just so beautifully printed and on gorgeous paper, uh-huh. and I can't even imagine... It would be very hard for me to, you know, engineer all of that myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
1: I don't, let, let's let the big people do the big things, yeah. Um, this may be impossible for you to answer, but I wonder if you have any sense of, especially for the commission paintings, kind of what people want when they want an artistic representation of their bicycle. Again, when I had my cap painted it's because she was getting on and i knew you know she wasn't going to be there forever and and i wanted an artist to kind of capture her from photos even but i don't know do you have a sense of why people want to have their um their bicycle kind of captured as art
0: you know everybody's different and i, I try to talk to the people and um you know invite them to come for a studio visit if they're local mm. And talk about what they want. And there's been some people where the bike is being retired after decades of being its trusty commuter. Or somebody wants to give a gift to their spouse. The 40th birthday was really (laughs) popular for a while. Um, You know, there's a wide range uh-huh. but you often it's before the bike is retired or maybe to commemorate the anniversary of a big win yeah, you know yeah, yeah on that bike yeah um I don't know the most powerful one I think where somebody uh there was a guy an an actor who was ill who had a l s who mm. was a really lovely person and he contacted me and he had been um, really into cycling, but more as transportation. Mm-hmm. he had cycled across the United States at one point and um he used the bike as a transportation in New York for years and he had he said he had known my paintings for a while, and he'd always wanted to get one done and as he was losing his mobility, you know he had at the time I met him, he had just stopped using his his Schwinn Aww. and he commissioned me to paint it he said because the bike was his mobility and his independence and oh. you know I painted it and I got to know him and and everything and it was really you know heartbreaking and and powerful mm. for me to be mm. involved with such a thing and and he wanted
1: to see that bike you yeah. know yeah yeah Yeah. Wow. That's an amazing experience. Um, So one thing that I've been very curious about, uh, sometimes people worry that if they turn their passion into their profession, it might kind of take the shine off the hobby, you know, like it might just become work and therefore a chore, you know, you you know, the the kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And I just wondered, has that happened to you? Were you worried about that happening to you? How do you um, deal with bikes being not only the thing that you love for the reasons you explained, but also your main artistic subject? So far, so good.
0: I think if it (laughs) if it stopped working for me, I'd probably do something else. Yeah, I think art should be in art of some kind, expression, creativity. It should be in everybody's life and not necessarily on a professional level
1: yeah yeah you
0: know I think when it becomes your profession it it can be harder but um I think you know making a living from art is as big a job as as making the art maybe even bigger but I think it can kind of roll together or become a really creative thing itself yeah Yeah. um i'm kind of a small fry so i'm not really interested in you know big business but i've been pretty comfortable keeping my my little business rolling and keeping myself afloat yeah and i love i have enormous pride that it's my artwork you know that's doing that and it's a I try to keep it fun and creative and interesting. You know, but there's a lot of paperwork. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I I like the way, you know, with a bike that it's a self-propelled vehicle. I feel like there's some kind of a a self-portrait of me in there. You know, that my business is very self-propelled and, you know, (laughs) human-powered.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing that struck me... um, Looking at at your site and also um, your work is also available on at least one kind of website that's not your site. As it was, it Saatchi Sachi Art. Um, yeah, that your work is inexpensive. You know, I, I imagine most professional artists get on a ladder where, like, may I don't know if it's their intention, but like, it's going to become more and more expensive, and. I don't know. I have a feeling that maybe that's not your model because there's kind of a more of a relationship with the people who buy your art maybe than than for you know many artists who kind of have their work in a gallery and they're not necessarily even knowing who's bought it. But that's all in my head. What do, what do you think about that? I think that
0: art should be accessible and I imagine my customers being um You know my, if not my peers, like my financial peers, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. not some like anonymous person who you know spends a fortune on art, but somebody like me who spends a reason you know like a an amount that's not going to break the bank on artwork. Mm -hmm. So I make my paintings and I sell my paintings, and I also make and sell a lot of prints, like Uh a lot of screen prints and stuff that are. You know, inexpensive and, you know, starting at $25 and up. And some of those, you know, while I'm not printing thousands of them, I might print, you know, say 50 or 60 every other year, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and they're numbered editions. And, you know, I wouldn't, I have a record of how many there are, Mm -hmm. but I sell those, you know, at the, Flea markets, Fishes Eddie on Nineteenth Street sells my prints, as does Collier West and on Atlantic between Hoyt and Bond. Um, and I sell them on Etsy and online. And you know, the one painting isn't like the only income, yeah. and it all kind of there's a lot of I guess revenue streams from <laughs> this. I have licensing work, and, yeah, yeah, you know, and it and it all kind of. Adds up. Yeah. And I'm able to keep my work, you know, available to the to like an audience that I can relate to. Mm -hmm. And um, it all kind of rolls along. One of my friends once said that he liked about my work that I use the whole animal that I, you know, I'll paint a picture and then I'll make, you know, a drawing from the painting or sketches related to the painting and prints from the drawing or prints from the same setup you know and then i might make cards from those or i might license the image um you know for like a well the calendar Mm -hmm. or i've done you know other licensing projects um i don't sit there when i'm making a painting and keep track of my hours and make (laughs) sure that i'm making a decent hourly wage for that time put in my painting because my whole life is this body of work. Yeah. And you know, it
1: it kinda works. That's awesome. And people can see your art at bicyclepaintings dot com. dot com, yes. Awesome. Talia Limpet, it's so awesome to have had a chance to look at your work and to talk to you. Thank you so much for talking to us about your process. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
2: When we return, June and I will talk about finding the flow, how to get inspired and what it means to have a life's work. June, I'm not a cyclist. I'm not a painter, but I loved that interview. And I found myself just writing down phrases or things that Talia had said because I found them so apposite to the creative process in any medium. The first was when she said she starts the day finding the flow, which is to say, trying to do the things that are going to help her get into the state where she can be creative. Because you can't just. Do it. Right. You got to like work your way into it. The flow state is something that artists in a lot of different disciplines experience and talk about It's actually something that athletes talk about a lot Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. entering the flow state. And, you know, one of the things that having a technique or a craft is actually for is to help you get into that state where you can feel loose and inspired. Do you have techniques that you use or ones that you've read about other people using that you find really interesting or effective?
1: I have read a lot about getting into the flow, very little of which I am fully convinced by. Most Mm. of what I've read, I think, conflates flow with deep work, which is basically concentration made possible by removing as many distractions as possible from your environment but is that flow? Not always. I think you're right, though, that some disciplines and tasks are more conducive to flow. For example, over the last nearly 20 years, miraculously, I have produced several podcasts. And even though I am a very mediocre audio editor, that is not modesty, that is just the truth, I find it relatively easy to get into a flow state when editing audio. And what I mean by that is that, sort of feeling where you're just in the work and you're not thinking about anything else. You're not checking your phone. You're not, you know, you don't even know what time it is. You look up and an hour has gone by and you're like, wait, what? And I have friends who love making pottery who report that kind of experience. And, you know, I suppose there must be people who write that way. But I'm sorry to report that I've never really reached that state for more than about... 30 minutes at a time at the very most.
2: Mm, And how long a break do you need between those 30 minutes of time before you can get back? Is it like 30 minutes in, 10 minutes out, another 30 minutes in? Or is it, you know, 30 minutes of writing session if you're lucky?
1: I wish I could say that I have that control. And I will sit there. I will sit at my desk and try and force myself. But it's not flow. And I, Mm. you know, having experienced it, even in things that I feel I'm less good at or kind of have less interest in. I think, I just wonder if it's even possible with writing. Do you get into a flow state with writing?
2: I have had times where, in an hour, I've written a shocking amount. Like an or in 90 minutes, you know, I'll sit down and then 90 minutes later, I've written 1200 words or something. Like, how the hell did I do that? But honestly, usually I spend four hours writing 1200 words. It's not that I got more than 1200 words done the rest of the day, it's just that all of it was like boiled into that time. I will say though, because I've only experienced this once or twice, it was while writing my book, The Method How the 20th Century Learned to Act, I had one or two days not in a row they were spread out and nothing could have predicted them in which I wrote more than 6,000 words in one sitting. Oh my God. Well, and I don't know how I did it. And it, like, broke me. Like, I couldn't function for three days afterwards. It was like <laughs> I I blew a circuit breaker in my yeah, mind, yeah. you know? But, like, there was one day, I just remember, where I just sat there. And then every time I wanted to get up out of the chair, I was like, don't get up out of the chair. Just keep going. Why not just keep going? And then I yeah. looked up, and it was the end of the day, and I would written, like, 8,000 words. That almost oh. never happens. I wish I could figure out how I did it so I could do it again. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing, but the the truth of the matter is it just normally doesn't work that way. I feel like most writers are lucky if you write a thousand words in 24 hours. Right. For real. Um, real. Another thing she said had to do with not the flow state, but the inspiration and how to find it that, you know, she's walking along as she sees something quote, That's beautiful. And I try to capture that end quote. Now, of course, her mediums bicycles, she's talking about the way the light (laughs) hits handlebars or, you know, the spokes, I almost said spindles, the spokes (laughs) of a tire, you know, how you see the shadow of it or, you know, whatever. Um, Most people don't have the kind of subject that's that specific, but we Mm -hmm. do all have those moments as creative people when an idea hits you. Oh, that would make a great painting. Or why don't I Mm -hmm. interview this person for working? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I overheard this thing someone said, it should be a line of dialogue in a short story. How do you remain open to that kind of inspiration and then capture it, you know, when you're lucky enough for the lightning to strike?
1: Isaac, my birthday isn't until next month, but I feel like you've just given me a fantastic present by asking what amounts to a stationary question. So Mm. thank you. Um, I do not want to suggest that I am a human sponge who just constantly is seeking content. But if I were that person, I do always have a notebook and a pen with me, you know, they're always in my pocket. And one thing I will just note is that I use that notebook and that pen a lot less now than I used to pre-pandemic. I used to go through one of those pocket notebooks a month and I think I'm on like month six of the current one and it's still not finished. Um, so I think that shows that really it's about engaging with the world in an unpredictable mode. You know, I used to be a commuter and, and so you're in a very specific like listening and paying attention for your own safety, but not trying to engage. So It's interesting to me that I I just have less of that capturing thing. And I have to say, too, that a lot of the time I'll look at those notes later and be just nothing but confused by them. Like, was that a deep thought about lesbian (laughs) culture or was it part of a shopping list? You know, I really can't tell, but I think I'd just be in a permanent state of anxiety or regret about losing, you know, what would be my greatest idea ever if I didn't have the ability to write them down in that moment.
2: Yeah, that totally makes sense. And of course, as she points out, sometimes your inspiration comes from a commission. Someone has paid you to say, hey, write about this, paint about this, make a pottery thing. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) That's a whole different technique of getting inspired.
1: No, it truly is. It's like golden age, isn't it? You know, hearkening back to the time of patrons and commissions and all of that. To me, it feels like a lot of pressure, but I guess since when she's working on a commission, she's clearly, you know, checking in with the person and kind of showing them what she's doing. She's not going to surprise them with something they weren't expecting. To me, though, when I get over that particular line of thought, this is the easiest part of her process to relate to, because this is like in journalism, when an editor reaches out to you with an assignment rather than me having to pitch a Love freelance. Love it when that
2: happens, because it's like, I don't have to come up with it. You want exactly. me to do something. Amazing.
1: It usually only happens to me in June when it's Pride Month and people really want those pieces. But anyway, and it is flattering, as you say, but you're still working to order. You still have to do the work, but they've come to you for your flair, your style, your knowledge. So even though it's hard, there's an aspect of respect to it, which usually kind of gives me a confidence that helps me, you know, just write this piece. Well, I must be able to do it because they came to me for it.
2: Yeah, totally, totally. I also love this thing she said at the end. My whole life is this body of work. I just really admired the level of self-awareness she had and the confidence to say that. You know, like, look, this is my thing. I paint and do prints of bicycles. It's how I make a living. I work really hard at it. It's who I am. I've been doing it since the nineties. You know, I have been in a lot of circumstances lately because I've been meeting new people, you know, parents at a kid's birthday party or a friend of a friend at a reading or whatever. And people say, Oh, you know, what do you do? And I used to say, Oh, hmm, how much time do you have? I do a lot of things. (laughs) You know, I have a podcast. I write, I teach, I think about directing plays again, you know, whatever it is. It's been a big change to just say, I'm a writer. And then when someone says, oh, what kind of writer are you? I say, I write cultural history and criticism. And then, you know, go from there in the conversation to really own, this is what I do. That's my life's work. It's my career. You know, I'm just curious where you are on this because you've been through a lot of kind of transitions uh, over the past couple of years.
1: That's right. Yeah, it really did change for me in the last year or so when I left my day job, because even though that was a creative job, I was giving feedback and bringing my taste and skills to help make... Things you know as successful as possible, but I also was doing administration. You know, I was. It's really hard to say I'm a writer when I was also spending hours and hours with invoices or expense reports or personnel issues. But I, I really like your formulation of what you want your life's work to be. I haven't even finished my first book yet, so I, I can't really talk about books. But you know, I have recently been thinking about. This will sound so old-fashioned. Putting together a website where I curate the pieces that I'm most proud of, or maybe that I want people who are interested in me or my work to look at. You know, it's something I've been talking about for years. Uh, so I don't know if I really will do it, but I, you know, I think I think that could be the thing that helps me, you know, really be able to commit to. Yeah, I'm a writer. Check him out.
2: Yeah, you know, I I feel like there is that thing about. When you're reflecting on your work in that way, whether it's building a website or, you know, I'm doing an event and they asked for a bio. And most yeah. of the time yeah. when someone asks for a bio, I actually write a new bio almost yeah. every time because it actually just helps position like, oh, this is who I am it, today. Maybe it's yeah, exactly. today, but this is the this is what I think I am today yeah. um, rather than cutting and pasting an old bio. There's just something about that that's like I'm telling the story of myself again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right on.
2: Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Before we leave, listeners, I just wanted to make a quick working-related announcement. Uh, If you're a regular listener of this show, and if you're not, why not click subscribe? (laughs) You may have noticed that uh, our co-host Karen Hahn hasn't been on for a few weeks. Well, that's only because she is on leave currently doing some other writing projects this summer. In the meantime, we are so excited to have as our wonderful summer-long guest host, The Great Nate Chinen, who currently writes about music and the arts for WGBO in Philadelphia and was before that the jazz columnist for the New York Times. He'll be hosting the show next week, interviewing the groundbreaking tap dancer Ayadele Cassell. To make sure you don't miss that or any other episodes, you know, why not subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Special thanks to our guest, Talia Lempert, and to our producer, Cameron Drews, the pedals and chain that propel our show to greatness. We'll be back next week. Until then, get back to work.